We're proud to support Living on Earth and hope you will too. Donate at LOE.org. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Scientists at the UN climate meeting say there's evidence that global warming is accelerating, but the news may not have reached the CIA. It's killed its center that studies climate change and national security. If the intelligence apparatus of this country with its $75 billion budget can't have a small center study one of the gravest threats facing the world, that's a pretty sad state of affairs. Also, the city that lit the world in the 19th century is using modern technology to solarize its citizens. We look at housing places. We look at the best houses and we'll actually identify those homes and go knock on the door of people and say, we've been looking at your home on Google, excuse us, you have a perfect roof, you're in a perfect position. We would like you to consider solar. We'll have that story and another visit to the place where you live this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Support for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The annual UN climate talks are underway in Doha as delegations from around the world negotiate potential solutions to the global climate crisis. It will be another week before it's clear if meaningful progress has been made or not. But scientists say the world isn't waiting for humans to act. One of the more startling scientific reports presented at Doha, based so far on preliminary data, suggests that emissions from the melting Arctic are headed for a tipping point that could lead to runaway warming. In the meantime, without fanfare, the Obama administration has recently axed the Center on Climate Change and National Security at the Central Intelligence Agency. Joe Rome is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress who watches climate issues closely, and he joins us to discuss this spooky business. Hello there. Howdy. Now, we understand that the CIA has shut down its Center for Climate Change and Security. Why did they have this center in the first place, do you think? Well, there had been increasing awareness uh, in the intelligence community in the Pentagon that uh, global warming, climate change was going to have an impact on uh, U.S. national security interests, whether it is military bases that are seeing sea level rise or countries that are subject to worse droughts and famines. So, you know, I think many countries around the world had come to the view that climate change was going to have a big impact on security. Why shut this unit down now? Apparently, the unit didn't have much support when Panetta left and General Petraeus took over at the CIA. Petraeus was very focused on terrorism. And uh, there's a lot of congressional Republicans who, you know, deny climate science and therefore attack any action by the federal government to study uh, climate change and its impacts. Some suggest that uh, the CIA shutting down its Center for Climate Change and Security is a budget matter. What's your analysis? Well, I think that everyone knows that, you know, budgets are under duress. We have this fiscal cliff. In all likelihood, discretionary spending, even for intelligence, is going to be cut. Some were saying that the uh, CIA was, you know, trying to make nice with congressional Republicans and not continue this center that they knew kind of uh, annoyed them. I, I hope that's not the case because, you know, this is a matter of pretty basic science and, and it would be a shame if our intelligence organization, whose job is to sift through facts 
and be completely separate from ideological spin, it would be a shame if they were getting pressured not to look at science and facts. Greenwire published a statement they attribute to Senator John Barrasso, a Republican from Wyoming, saying that closing the Climate Change Center at the CIA is the right decision. It's critically important for the CIA to focus its resources on preventing terrorism and keeping Americans safe. The entire U.S. intelligence budget is $75 billion. So I think, you know, there was clearly money available to be looking at these longer-term global threats like climate change. But, you know, after seeing what Hurricane Sandy did to New York and New Jersey, and imagine how these superstorms are going to be when they hit poorer countries that don't have the kind of resources that we do, I don't think anyone can say that we should ignore the threat of climate change. To what extent, uh, Joe Rome, do you think the U.S. security establishment recognizes climate change as a security threat? I think there's no question that the security establishment uh, understands that climate change is a, a threat and a growing one. You know, the World Bank, for instance, just issued a report saying we are headed towards a series of, of pretty catastrophic impacts if we don't reverse carbon pollution trends. Uh, and the Pentagon has, you know, certainly looked at the impact of sea level rise and drought. So, yeah, I, I think the security establishment is aware of it, but until federal government, until there is broad acceptance by not just Democrats, but, you know, conservatives and, and the like, that one can start publicly talking about climate change and the threat that it poses, it's always going to be hamstrung in how much it can do. Well, how much, though, can the Democrats do? I mean, how much will the White House push a new CIA director? Because with the departure of General Petraeus from the CIA, there's a job opening there. How much will the White House push this new director to consider climate issues, bring back perhaps the Center for Climate Change and Security at the Central Intelligence Agency? Well, it's a good question. These things are always dependent on the individual involved. Clearly, the number one job of the Central Intelligence Agency has got to be to prevent terrorist attacks uh, on the U.S. and its national interests around the world. But uh, as even Barrasso said, the, the goal of the intelligence apparatus is to help make Americans safer and more secure. And since global warming is clearly a growing threat to our security, both directly and through how it affects countries that we have an interest in, you know, we need to focus the CIA and the Pentagon's uh, thinkers on climate change. Final word here, Joe. Closing the center, a mistake? Closing the center was absolutely a mistake. Uh, if the intelligence apparatus of this country with its $75 billion budget can't have a small center to study one of the gravest threats facing the world, that's a pretty sad state of affairs. Joe Rome is a senior fellow at the Center for American Progress in Washington. Thanks so much, Joe. Oh, thanks for having me. The once mighty Colorado River frequently dries up long before it reaches the sea just south of the Mexico-U.S. border. The U.S. captures most of the water, taking ten times as much as Mexico. On both sides of the border, millions depend on the shrinking river as a critical water source. Well, now Mexico and the U.S. have signed an amendment to their nearly 70-year-old water pact that shares the water a bit more equitably. To explain the details, we turn to Carlos de la Parra. 
He's professor of urban and environmental studies at El Colegio de la Frontera Norte, the College of the Northern Frontier in Tijuana, Mexico, and advised the Mexican commissioner in the Colorado River negotiations. Welcome to Living on Earth. Hello. How are you? Good. Now, what's in this new pact between the United States and Mexico? Well, it's an agreement that there are things that both countries see eye to eye. Uh, one is the issue of a delta that needs to be restored. Second issue is that equity must prevail in the new agreement, and that means that if there is a shortage of supply, then everybody gets a little less, and if there's a surplus, everybody gets a little more. The third element is that uh, both countries see that there's a benefit for investing in infrastructure to increase efficiency, conserve water, and therefore have more to go around. So when the International Water Agreement was put together back in 1944, as I understand it, the U.S. gets 15 million acre-feet every year off the Colorado River, and Mexico gets just 1.5 million acres, one-tenth of the U.S. amount. How fair is that? Well, that's a good question. It depends on who you ask. Ask folks on the U.S. side. There are some that will say that Mexico got too much. And if you ask folks on south of the border, we might say that we got too little or that quantity is not the issue, but quality. And so it really is something very relative. What happens to the water promised to Mexico in the new arrangement? It's still there. Uh, but the treaty itself says that in cases of extreme drought, both countries would have to reduce their allocation. Fortunately, the uh, agreement also says that investments that uh, will take place starting next year will conserve enough water so that the folks that are suffering because of less allocation will have some water saved up to counteract that shortage. In times when there's more water, everybody, including Mexico now, gets a surplus. Where would the surplus be held for Mexico? In Lake Mead. Mexico doesn't have the topography or the geology doesn't allow for Mexico to have a storage basin uh, in Mexican territory. So now Lake Mead will also have an additional volume of water stored there that will be labeled, this is Mexican water. How much does the uh, a new arrangement devote to conservation of the Colorado River? You know, conservation is something that has been sort of flying under the radar of both countries. There's obviously ways to improve water efficiency in agricultural areas, both in California and in Baja California and the Mexicali Valley. But there's also a lot of uh, efficiency in conservation that can be done in cities. So at least this new agreement, it's, you know, a proactive approach to what's going to happen when there's actually greater shortage of water, if indeed that happens. It's now become one, uh, a part of the mix, which is a lot to say for 21st century water management. Talk to me about the delta of the Colorado River when it comes into the Sea of Cortez there uh, between Baja California and the, and the mainland of Mexico. The wetlands of the Colorado River are about 90% gone. They were desiccated over the course of a century. And uh, this agreement is not an effort in trying to restore a delta more than trying to make it a viable habitat for wildlife, migratory birds, and resident birds. And there are some endangered species that are suffering because of the lack of habitat. There's also uh, some impact. We don't know how much, but there's also some impact on wildlife uh, in the marine ecosystem. 
So it's actually trying to patch up something that we haven't been doing for at least 50 years and then starting to monitor and see what happens. The idea, the utopia of you know, turning back the clock is probably not in the minds of the folks that arranged for this agreement. So science is telling us that uh, climate change uh, is upon us and could decrease the Colorado River's flow by up to 20% over these next uh, 40 years. How does the pact uh, address this looming problem? Well, keep in mind that this agreement will only be in force for five years. Okay. It's actually a pilot period that will allow us to start examining how good we are in sharing investment for conservation in contributing jointly to the restoration of wetlands and analyzing future data that will be required so that in the future, when those 40 years come, we're not going to be fighting about what triggers a shortage or how much is required so that we can have what is called an extreme drought. In the West, they say, whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting. (laughs) I wonder what tequila is for. (laughs) Maybe for celebrating that water isn't for fighting. (laughs) Thank you so much for taking this time with me today. No, thank you very much for the opportunity. Carlos de la Parra teaches urban and environmental studies at El Colegio de la Frontera Norte. Just ahead, bar she blows. How the city at the heart of the lighting business in the 19th century is getting a sustainable energy makeover. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. In Herman Melville's classic tale of a whale, the narrator, called Ishmael, boards a schooner in the port at the heart of the whaling industry, New Bedford, Massachusetts. New Bedford was the city that lit the world back when whale oil was the chief fuel for lamps. Those days, and most of the whales, are long gone. But New Bedford has ambitions for a new and more sustainable energy future, as reporter Naomi Ehrenberg discovered on a recent visit. If you walk up the hill from the port of New Bedford through the cobblestone streets of the downtown area, you'll see some of the same buildings that Herman Melville described in his 19th century novels, But there's a lot of 21st century green change in New Bedford as well, as city officials are developing a model for environmental responsibility that they say could be copied all over the U.S. When I took office in January of this year, I thought it was very important to set a tone about conservation and sustainability. And one way to do that was to continue the retrofit program that had been started by the previous administration. John Mitchell is mayor of New Bedford. He's continuing programs that the previous administration started three years ago. Federal stimulus dollars funded a new department, the Energy Office, which undertook energy assessments and retrofitting in homes and municipal buildings. This is all with an effort, really, to save folks in the city money on energy. And we have a very needy population here. We have about 20% of our population, unfortunately, lives under the poverty line. And so every nickel for them counts. Poverty is key to the city's environmental initiatives. The wealthy whaling captains and cotton mill owners, the ones who built imposing homes and large public structures, they're gone. Over the last half century, the city's population has shrunk by about a quarter, and unemployment has remained high. A new citywide program aims to lower energy costs, 
create jobs, reduce carbon emissions, and help build community. Ken Ramos is the outreach coordinator for New Bedford Energy Now. It's really about all the people that I knew, just being able to call them up and for them to know me, they could trust me, that if I said free audits, you know, they would believe me. Ramos is known as a community organizer and electrician. Now he's reaching out to all residents, both owners and renters, through numerous community organizations and schools to make sure that everyone knows about energy audits, cost-free, through the state's Mass Save program. Adrian Wilkins is Ken's assistant. There is no movement without our community's involvement. And knowing someone for 30, 40, 50, 60, how do you, Ken, 22, 70 years, is it so important because without that, people are a little hesitant. You know, they want to know who you are, where you're from. There is no outreach without the relationship to the community. Mass Save offers every household $2,000 worth of inspectional services and improvements, air sealing the home, insulating the hot water heater and attic, and replacing incandescent lamps with compact fluorescent bulbs. And local 16 to 24-year-olds who've dropped out of school are being trained to do the work. Okay, all right. Um, just give me a half a seat. Gloria Williams is director of New Bedford's Youth Build program. We have construction training. We have weatherization training. Several years ago, youth builds across the country, and particularly here in New Bedford, we were experiencing funding losses. And secondly, our labor market is not really that strong for young people. So we were trying to figure out ways that we could increase job opportunities for graduates of the Youth Build program. And at that time, green was on a new wave. So we decided to do weatherization as a service in youth build. Her graduates earn $15 an hour as contractors for Mass Save, high wages for this region. But these days, business is down and the program is running in the red. That's unfortunate in a city with over 75% youth unemployment. And youth build is likely to cut this program. But Ken Ramis of New Bedford Energy Now is upbeat he sees a bright spot in the city's solar outreach efforts with current technology as an important tool. Oh, we use Google Earth all the time. Our contractors use Google to go around and identify potential sites for solar. We look at housing placements, we look at the best houses, and we'll actually identify those homes and go knock on the door of people and say, we've been looking at your home on Google, excuse us. You have a perfect roof. You're in a perfect position. We would like you to consider solar. And solar installation can be free for New Bedford residents. It works this way. The city partners with a privately owned national company, Real Good Solar, which installs the arrays at no cost on any roof with clear southern exposure. Real Goods owns the energy produced and the solar array for 20 years, while the resident buys energy from Real Goods at a fixed price, below the average rate. Then, after two decades, the solar installation will belong to the building owner. So far, only three homeowners have gone solar with this program, but two more installations are pending, and residents are signing up for solar evaluations. Public housing is going green, too. After retrofitting all of its 516 buildings, the Housing Authority outfitted 24 with photovoltaic cells last year. And the city's municipal buildings are becoming energy efficient as well, thanks to Scott Durkee, the city's energy director, who was recovering from a cold when I met him. During his first few years in town, his office accomplished a lot, 
but there were problems. When it came to the solar and really expanding these programs, because I was an outsider, a lot of roadblocks. When Ron took me under his wing, these doors have now opened, and now you've seen the solar program really move forward. Ron is the city's commissioner of infrastructure, Ron LaBelle. He shares Scott's agenda. My electric bill in the city is roughly $4.5 million. When I say the wastewater collection system, that's a treatment plant, and it's also pumping stations, so it's a large mechanical operation. We have over 33 pumping stations citywide. So I became familiar with Scott Durkee and his program, and we started looking at solar. This building that we're in right now, on a sunny day, our meters are turning backwards because we produce more energy than we use. So we're making money on this. It's not a bad deal. Back at the harbor, some of the fleet of 300 fishing boats are preparing to go to sea. Within a couple of months, they'll be plugging into electric stations at the pier rather than running their dirty diesel engines to cool the catch or heat the cabin. And the harbor is set for a new green industry as the nation's first staging ground for wind farms, a project just approved by the EPA. Ron LaBelle again. This will be the staging area for all of the materials that are going to be shipped into New Bedford to be shipped out into Buzzards Bay to build the Cape Wind project. There's a laydown area for all of the impellers that come in that are 180 foot long. So everything can be brought in by rail, put on ships, and brought out for the Cape Wind project. City Energy Director Scott Durkee is equally enthusiastic about the port's future in wind. It's not just Cape Wind. New Bedford now will be the deployment of any offshore wind development in the Northeast. It is one of the greatest economic benefits for the city probably the last 50 years, and it is truly exciting. you got the foundation of the short sea shipping with the potential of the future of this country with wind, and we're at the heart of it. And Scott Durkee says this is just part and parcel of New Bedford's focus on new energy. The goal was to tie what we're doing now with the history and the pride of this city. And the cultural pride in this location is unbelievable. They lit the world. At one point, they were the first energy capital of the world. That's huge. And what we said is, in the past we lit the world, going forward, we're going to sustain it. We're going to teach how to do the right things. We're not going to generate to light the world ever again. But now let's show them how to do it right, which is what we're all doing together, trying to build that model that you can hand off. That incorporates everything. If New Bedford can once again provide a guiding light, then perhaps other communities will follow into a green energy future. For Living on Earth, I'm Naomi Arenberg in New Bedford, Massachusetts. Coal-fired power plants can produce dangerous levels of air pollution, and according to a new report published by the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, low-income communities of color are disproportionately affected. 
The report is based on a U.S. study by economist Adrian Wilson at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst and sponsored by the NAACP, Little Village Environmental Justice Organization, and the Indigenous Environmental Network. Joining us now to discuss the findings is Jackie Patterson, director of the Climate Justice Initiative at the NAACP. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you. It's good to be here. For this report, you looked at all 378 coal-fired power plants, the big ones, over, I guess, 100 megawatts, right? Exactly, yes. And what did you find? We found that overall coal-fired power plants are not only disproportionately located in low-income communities, but they're also disproportionately located in communities of color, and sometimes not necessarily low-income communities of color, but communities of color in and of themselves. It's not always that they're being built in those communities. It often the plants are there and the communities come later. And part of the issue there is that the property values are lower in areas where these toxic facilities are. Um, in fact, the one recent study I read said they're at least 15% lower. So when, you, when you're talking about low-income communities or low-wealth communities, those are the areas that they can afford to buy into. In some communities, we found that sometimes it is that political piece. There's a lack of representation of the communities that are being host to the plants in the places that are making the decisions about the siting of these plants. So that we've seen happening more often than not in communities of color. Now, you went through and gave grades to each of the 378 coal-fired power plants in the U.S. Uh, How many did you flunk? So 75 got an F score. A little over 100 got a a D or an F. We consider both of those to be failing. A large number of the failing plants were in the Midwest, particularly in Illinois, Michigan, Ohio, Indiana. Some of the ones that received the worst, worst, worst um, scores were the Fisk and Crawford plants, which fortunately in Chicago have been closed since we did our research. They closed this year. The Lakeshore plant in Cleveland is still operational. It also got a failing score. Our ranking ranked them based on the level of sulfur dioxide emissions, level of nitrogen dioxide emissions, proximity to people in terms of the population density surrounding the plant, the proportion of people who are people of color, and the proportion of people who are low income. Based on that, we ranked all 378. What are the negative health impacts felt by people living around these power plants? Some of the, the toxins that come from these plants, such as the sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxide, are tied with various respiratory illnesses from exacerbating asthma attacks to um, actually being tied to lung cancer. Mercury has been tied to birth defects. Lead has been tied to learning difficulties, um, including attention deficit disorder and so forth. You can't really absolutely say that this plant caused this person's asthma or that, but you can say that in areas where these plants are in, you can track higher concentration of certain types of illnesses but that really is something that universities have to look at. And so we're really encouraging our branches to partner with universities in their areas to be able to do that kind of analysis. How aware are people living in these communities of the health impacts of coal fire power plant pollution? So when we actually went out and started to speak with communities, say, okay, do you have a sense of this coal fire power plant in your backyard? Do you understand what the connections might be to any um, illnesses that you find? And you really across the board, A, people weren't really aware of the presence of the plant. Other places, you know, like Chicago, where there's actually activism, there has been for 10 years around the plant, you might see awareness. But in places like um, New Albany, Indiana, for example, 
Well, we visited with several families. One person knew about the plant because her, her, her father worked in the plant. She didn't, hadn't heard at all about any particular tie to any illnesses, but she did say that her father died of cancer that, that they thought potentially had started in his lungs, that he had never smoked a day in his life. And another person we met with there, again, didn't know of any potential health impacts of that plant, but he lived about a mile from the plant. His wife died of lung cancer and had never smoked a day in her life. So we found a lot of those types of stories where we would go to a community, they would talk about how half the people in their church were on respirators or half the kids in their school had asthma, but again, never really tied it to a coal plant until we started to have some of these conversations around it. So they, they tied to quality of life in terms of not being able to hang out their laundry because soot would cover their laundry or always having to wash their car because soot would be all over their car. There might be some level of awareness, but... I would say more times than not, there really wasn't. How successful have been the attempts to close down some of these plants? Across the board, folks have, I mean, in the last few years, various activists around the country have shut down, I think, I believe about 100 plants, but either shut down or slated for closure over the next couple of years. So certainly between activist action at the community level and recognition on the part of the federal government of the need to, to um, regulate pollution from these plants. So the passage uh, the, or the implementation, finalization of the uh, mercury and air toxics rule, for example, that regulates some of the very toxins we talked about earlier, they're starting to recognize the relationship between these plants and our environment. So between their, those regulations and the community activism, there is definitely success in shutting it down. Uh, right now, you're in Doha for the climate negotiations, so the UN climate negotiations. My question is, what role do you think environmental justice should play in the effort to slow climate disruption? Climate change, unfortunately, disproportionately impacts certain communities, definitely um, low-income communities and communities of color as well. So I think that the role and the voice of communities that are so affected by this should be in the forefront in terms of talking about solutions and talking about our imperative to act on the, on the most aggressive forms of solutions. And we really have to be a lot smarter about making sure that those communities are at that table to bring that knowledge as well as to bring the passion born out of the fact that it's their very survival at that stake. Jackie Patterson is the director of the Climate Justice Initiative at the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. up the greenest campus in America and how it makes efficiency pay. Keep listening to Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation, the Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI. Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Coming up, another visit to the place where you live or find your inspiration. But first, this note on emerging science from Christy Pereira. Neurological conditions, such as addiction and depression, 
are difficult to treat successfully. But research suggests there may be a new tool for combating such disorders, and we have monkey mind control to thank. Researchers at Massachusetts General Hospital have been experimenting with optogenetics, a methodology that targets neurons in order to control animal behavior. Using optogenetics, these scientists found that they can direct monkey behavior by showing them a series of blue light pulses. These flashes activate specific brain cells that cause the monkeys to move their eyes. This is the first time this method has been shown to alter behavior in monkeys. Optogenetics works by inserting light-sensitive genes into neurons to make them responsive to light. This experiment targeted neurons that control the monkey's eye movements. The scientists were able to activate the neurons and monitor the effects with functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI. Once activated, the neurons fired and caused the monkeys to subtly move their eyes. Scientists hope this research will help them gain greater insight into how human brains control behavior. Because optogenetics can target very specific types of cells, it offers special promise for disorders that affect discrete areas of the brain, such as Parkinson's disease, addiction, and depression. Researchers hope that ultimately these findings will enable them to see the light and find successful treatments for these conditions. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Christy Pereira. Northeastern University in Boston is the greenest college in America. That's according to the green metric ranking of world universities. And worldwide, Northeastern ranks only just below the University of Nottingham in the UK. Northeastern scores for energy efficiency and climate protection in 2011 helped it beat out all other colleges, including the University of Connecticut, the University of California at Berkeley, and UCLA, in the world competition conducted by the University of Indonesia. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom took a visit to the Northeastern campus and has this story of how they've been able to score with efficiency. Northeastern University sits right in downtown Boston, between Symphony Hall and the Museum of Fine Arts. I met Joe Ranahan, the energy manager for the university, next to the Ruggles subway stop right outside Shulman Hall. He greeted me on a wide green lawn, but it didn't always look this way. There used to be a highway that went right through where the Ruggles station is. Now it's uh, become a pretty open and green space, where before it was just um, a dirt parking lot and thousands and thousands of cars. Instead of paving the parking lot and building expensive garages, the university planted grass and focused their development on public transportation. The school is now within walking distance of several bus routes, five subway stops, and is part of a metro bike share program. The carbon footprint has been reduced by a tremendous amount. And Northeastern says it's on track to reach its goal to reduce carbon pollution 80% by 2050. Joe led me on a walking tour of the campus to show off the work they've done so far. We're close to our steam plant. It's a big energy feature on our campus. We, uh, we feed steam through the ground to uh, about 70% of our buildings. We use steam on campus to heat during the uh, winter. Um, we use it all year round to heat water for kitchens, for student uh, dormitories. It's an extremely clean plant and uh, we're actually very proud of it. So can we go see it now? Yes, we can. It is. It's um. It's actually good that it's hot in here. Um, it's you, it's more efficient to make steam using hot air as the combustion air than it is to use cold air. Um, you you have to heat the air up to combustion temperature, and if it's already warm, you have a more efficient process. 
So, so what are we seeing here? These are some really big machines. Yes, we uh, we have six boilers in our plant. The reason that we uh, we wanted to start making our own steam was because the steam utility would send us steam, but we would take the condensate, which is the water left after the useful work is taken out of the steam, we would have to throw that condensate down the drain. It was a waste of water, it was a waste of heat. So what we did is we started to slowly build a steam distribution network of our own, and we take that condensate back to our steam plant and take that hot water and reuse it to make new steam. We save a, a tremendous amount of water, and we also save, again, a tremendous amount of, of energy because we're using our preheated water to make steam again. Joe says these changes are saving the university several million dollars a year over what they were paying to buy steam. They're systematically looking at all the buildings to see if there are other opportunities for more efficiency. One thing that I hate to see is a, uh, a window open during the winter because somebody has a broken thermostat and their heat stuck on. Or conversely, we've all probably been in some office somewhere in the summertime where you wish you had a sweater. Right, right. And that's, I mean, that, there's no need for that. Since 2005, energy consumption by buildings on the Northeastern University campus has fallen by roughly 21%, but Renahan says they're not done yet. There's a continual energy audit for each of the roughly 70 buildings on campus. It'll sort of be like painting the Brooklyn Bridge, where by the time we get to the last one, it'll be time to start the first one again. Joe Renahan is especially excited about the new construction on campus. Northeastern University's newest building, International Village, is just three years old and LEED Gold certified. So this is the uh, front vestibule of the uh, of International Village, and the, uh, the feature that uh, we're looking at in this particular space is the daylight harvesting. There's large glass windows which let in uh, plenty of light when the sun's out. So there's sensors on the roof that sense that light, and when it's bright enough inside of this space, it turns all the lights off automatically. Okay, so, uh, so where are we off to next here? Um, I think we'll go onto the green roof, which is uh, which is one floor up. Okay. This was the first building that we decided to look at. These um, these are motion-controlled stairwell lights. So what these do is they dim the light down to the code the safety level, but when somebody st comes walking up the stairs, they'll turn on to full brightness so that they can see. It makes sense. Why waste the power if nobody's using it? But we're still, we still maintain the safety code. We leave the hallway and enter a gym with runners working out on a treadmill. Large glass doors open up to the roof of the cafeteria, but this roof looks more like a park. It has vegetated areas that absorb water runoff and bamboo plantings to provide shade in the summer. It's a beautiful place to, uh, to sit. So was there a reason to put this in other than aesthetics? Uh, well, it does um, act as insulation on the, uh, the roof below. In addition to that, we have um, some natural lighting for the cafeterias. If you look to my right, you'll see two what look like sheds. They're actually skylights, which light the, the service area of the cafeteria downstairs. Going up. Even the elevators here got an environmental upgrade. Elevators are kind of a forgotten thing in, a, um, in any building. And when we first took over the building, I got into the elevators and the first thing I noticed was incandescent light bulbs. So I said, we can't have incandescent light bulbs in an elevator. They're on 24-7 and they're the least efficient type of light. 
So the university worked with a utility, NSTAR, to install LED lights in the elevators. By replacing incandescents with LEDs, Northeastern saves roughly 41,000 kilowatt hours a year and roughly $5,000. It's close to lunchtime, and Joe Ranahan is eager to show off the cafeteria in International Village. It's bright with lots of natural light. It offers organic and vegan options and sources the food from local farms as much as possible. They compost six to seven hundred tons of food waste each year and send it back to farms for fertilizer. This cafeteria has the distinction of being the first Green Restaurant Association um, green-rated cafeteria that's in a LEED gold-rated building. Kind of sounds like you're trying to shoehorn yourself into a, um, an award, but it's actually a nice award to have. It's a long climb to the top of the Curry Student Center, where 90 solar panels were installed back in 1994 as an experiment. They still produce power, but the math doesn't quite make sense on a large scale. You look at this whole roof filled with solar panels, and it produces maybe 3% of the power for this building. I mean, if I needed to power this whole building, I'd have to cover all of these roofs with solar panels. Just to power this one to building? Power this one building. So it, it just especially in a space-constrained area like an urban school, we don't have the space to sort of put a you know, large utility-sized uh, array onto campus. Ranahan says efficiency is the way to go. The way that we look at it, you could generate clean power, but then use it inefficiently, or you could use less power through more efficient uh, means, and either way, you're still, the net effect is that you are creating less emissions. Northeastern has a relatively small endowment to make the upgrades to the university, so they've made the conscious choice to save money by going green. In the last five years, the school has reduced its power use by nearly 10.7 million kilowatt hours annually, saving the school nearly $1.3 million a year. Sam Solomon is the Northeastern University treasurer. Well, I know that our overall utility costs have been able to remain stable or go down over recent years, even though obviously the size of the campus has gotten larger and the footprint and square footage has gotten bigger. So whether you can tie it directly to the new windows or to other energy-saving features, we're obviously doing something right. Northeastern expects to be around for a long time, so they feel they can afford to wait for dividends from energy efficiency investments. In the long run, we look at any project we do on a cost-benefit analysis, and anything with a reasonable payback period, it's worth making the investment, even if it takes a couple of years to get the money back. Northeastern is not alone when it comes to investing in sustainability. I think we're in the early days of a spectacular trend. Mitchell Tomaschow is president emeritus of Unity College in Maine and a consultant to colleges and universities on sustainability issues. If you look at all the sustainability initiatives that are taking place now in colleges and universities, it's absolutely mind-boggling compared to what we were seeing, let's say, at the end of the 1990s or in the early 2000s. Tomaschow says colleges and universities across the country are experimenting with a wide range of innovations that work for them. In congested Boston, solar panels don't make sense for Northeastern. But in wide open and sunny Arizona, that math works out differently. 
visit uh, Arizona State University, you'll see solar panels on the football stadium. You'll see them on the parking lots. There are schools that are focusing on wind. University of Minnesota put a whole bunch of uh, windmills in. And then there are small colleges. Unity College, where I was president, has a tremendous focus on sustainability. We built the first LEED Platinum uh, president's residence in the country. So we can go on and on and on. The list is just enormous. More than 700 colleges and universities in the U.S. have signed pledges to reach carbon neutrality. They serve nearly 40% of students nationally, and Tomashow says these institutions are setting a good example for the students they educate. When the campus models sustainability initiatives, it sends a terrific message to the students. It says, yes, life can be lived this way. You can think about this for your home or whatever business that you're going to work for. Back at Northeastern University, Joe Ranahan says he takes a lot of satisfaction in the work he and his colleagues are doing here, especially since Ranahan himself is a graduate of Northeastern. We've saved the university millions and millions of dollars, millions and millions of kilowatt hours, uh, and carbon emissions. I should think, too, you must feel pretty good when you go to bed at night knowing that you're saving all this energy and saving your alma mater all this money. I do. I drive my son crazy at home because I, um, I preach the same thing at home. I mean, it's, it's really ingrained in me. It doesn't make any sense to waste resources when you don't need to. And, um, you know, that's what it all comes down to. It's whether you want to waste something or you want to uh, save it for the next generation. And uh, I prefer not to waste it. Joe Ranahan, teaching his son how to conserve energy at home and putting the lessons into practice as energy manager at Northeastern University in Boston. For Living on Earth, I'm Bobby Bascom. This week, we have another in the Living on Earth Orion Magazine series, The Place Where You Live. For more than a decade, Orion has invited readers to put their memories of home on a map and submit essays on their website. And now, we're giving them a voice. Our writer today was born half a world away. But for 40 years, he's turned his eyes to the green hills of California for solace and help. My name is Wong Yu Chong. I live in Berkeley, California. I have been working on the translation of the Laozi in the past four years, and I'm about uh, halfway done. I never come down from these hills without some insights, uh, epiphanies, from the work on my desk. Once I leave it, I get new angles and new insights. So going up to these hills is a very uh, crucial part of my writing. It's not just the philosophy of Lao Tzu that inspires Wang Yuchang. Before he read his essay, he shared a poem by the 8th century Chinese poet Li Bai, titled, Answering the Common People from the Mountains. San Zhong Dab Zhou Yan Man Yu Ho Yi Chai Bik San Siu Yi Bat Dab Sam Ji Han Asked why I live in these green hills, I smile and do not answer. My heart is naturally calm. Peach blossoms riding a stream vanish 
in mystery, another world, not the human realm. My green hills are the Berkeley Hills. These hills run parallel to the coast and fault lines in a northwesterly direction. They have been jolted into their present form by tectonic upheaval of the Earth's crust. The famous San Andreas Fault runs under the ocean, beyond the Golden Gate. But a mile away, the Hayward Fault knives through houses and streets. It last shook in 1868. An hour's walk from my door is Wildcat Peak, where Nike missiles stood guard against Russian MiGs. Also gone are the Ohlone and Miwok, the indigenous people who once inhabited these hills. Walking here for forty years, I have enjoyed the sounds of crunching leaves underfoot and bird chorus. I've met kestrels, crows, deer, foxes, and white-tailed rabbits. From these hills, I can see city high-rises against the western sky. In the east, are ranch homes on half-acre lots along the Calaveras Fault. Looking down, I often find rattlers or gopher snakes in my path. Looking up, I see circling red-tailed hawks, turkey vultures, and migrating geese in huge Vs. Up on these hills is another world. That's Wang Yu Chong, and we want to hear about the place where you live. To find out how to submit your essay for the Orion Magazine Living on Earth series, visit our website, LOE.org. We leave you this week with a slightly different kind of Earth ear, an Inuit throat song called "The River." Even the rivers feel the short urgency of the Arctic summer as they tumble over the tundra. That's reflected in this song by Karen Panugoniak. And Mariah Ilangayak, writer Mark Seth Lender recorded it in the traditional community of Arvia. There are some of Mark's Arctic photos at our website, LOE.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Annie Sneed, James Kerwood, Megan Miner, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lierish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org and check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening.
Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. Stonyfield invites you to Just Eat Organic for a Day. Details at JustEatOrganic.com. Support also comes from you, our listeners, the Go Forward Fund and Pax World Mutual and Exchange Traded Funds, integrating environmental, social, and governance factors into investment analysis and decision-making. On the web at PaxWorld.com. PaxWorld for tomorrow. PRI Public Radio International.